Welcome to the Pivotcast. This episode was recorded on December 15th, 2017 at the Transact Club. This episode features readings from Anita Dolman, Kevin Hardcastle, Domenica Martinello, and Nabin Ruthnim. Just so you know, this episode contains some strong sexual content, language, and descriptions of violence. Listener's discretion is advised. Thank you guys for coming. It's December. Uh, so first up, we have Anita Dolman. Uh, her poetry and fiction have appeared in journals and anthologies throughout North America, including Canadian Ginger, Matrix Magazine, On Spec, Grain, Prism, and Triangulation, Lost Voices. She's the author of two poetry chapbooks and was a finalist for the 2015 Alberta Magazine Award for Fiction. Lost Enough by uh, out with Morning Rain Publishing is Anita's debut short fiction collection. Welcome, Anita. Thank you for having me, and uh, thanks to everybody for coming out tonight. I actually grew up um, about two hours uh, west of here uh, in a town called Wingham, and uh, Toronto was the place I went to when um, when relatives were visiting. So it's changed a lot in that time. And I'm very grateful it's changed a lot in that time because uh, it, it wasn't the prettiest city before. I'm sorry, but it, it really wasn't. <laughs> and, and you're looking really good now. Okay, I'm going to read f- the story Overgrowth, which I think is the third story in here. This is a collection of flash fiction and uh, short stories. Overgrowth. Inside the empty wooden house, it is calm and dark and cool. A quiet refuge from the August heat and the oppressive continual buzz of cicadas and power lines. In her tumble through the doorway, Jules scraped her arm along the torn linoleum of the forgotten kitchen. She sits cross-legged inside the empty doorway, inspecting her jacket. Twin streaks of gray dirt stretch from the shoulder to just above the elbow. She brushes against it back and forth with the palm of her hand. Nothing is torn. Lucky. Foolish to play such a childish game, even if no one was looking. She's 15, far too old to pretend anything anymore. She looks the kilometer down the laneway towards the concession road. It is too far and too blocked by summer's high grasses and overgrown seedlings to see except where the tiny gap of dusty laneway allows the rare flash of a car kicking up dust and gravel. She listens as a killdeer tweets at her, still hysterical over Jules's wild dodge past its nest. My children, my children, look how you frightened my children and their eggs. Jules imagines the frantic mother screeching. She wonders if killdeer are naturally nervous because they make their nests on roadways, or if they build their nests on the road because they want a reason to be upset all the time. No offense, says Jules to the bird, but I know some people like that, so, you know, it seems like a fair question. Jules stands and dusts the dirt from her jeans. Once upon a time, she and Carrie would ask their moms for cleaning supplies and load the back, the bike basket, their bike baskets full of paper towels and Windex and garbage bags to make something of the house. Once, Carrie biked the entire way from her house while ba- balancing a broom along the length of her bike the straw head perched on the handlebars, the wooden shaft bouncing on her thigh with each turn as she pedaled behind Jules. The girls had dreams that they would fix the house until it was real. Remember that? We figured we could make you a contender, says Jules in the direction of the iron mass that was once a working wood stove. 
once. Not likely, answers the house. I was always destined for the fields. You and me both, answers Jules, to which the house has no reply. Jules steps carefully around the ever-expanding hole in the kitchen floor. There's more rustling, this time stemming from the exposed pile of wood and plaster that blankets the earthen basement below. At least you're still good for something, she says, peering down. Looks like you have new tenants. Aren't you just full of delightful observations and self-pity today? Stop by any time you want to act like this. I don't get enough misery out here anymore. Be careful, by the way. I think they're skunks. The hole has crumbled open so wide that the only way for Jules to take the last step to the staircase is to swing around the chasm by grabbing the newel post at the base of the stairs. Great, she thinks to herself in mid-leap. I could die stinking. The thought strikes her as absurdly funny, and she lands smiling. Or I could just stinking die. That isn't funny at all. The darkness of the house, so cool and welcoming minutes before, shoots through her and chills her suddenly from the inside out. House, she calls, starting up the stairs. Jules, the house mimics her. Don't leave me, please, house. Never, Juliana, I promise. What remains of the top layer of wallpaper has hardened in time to a dry yellow gloss stretched along the walls from scrape to hollow. Within the deepest fissures, as at the frayed edges of boot-kicked holes and natural disintegrations, Jules can see the exposed strata of decades of other papers beneath. The bottom layer, a plaster of newspapers from the time the house was built, is Jules's favorite thing about the farmhouse, and has been since she and Carrie first stole inside at the age of nine. New friends on a Sunday bike ride to Belmore for ice cream. They had stopped and dared each other to get close then closer, and then to go in. For Jules, the house is her first and, so far, her only love, although she now abandons it for months at a time, visiting when she does mostly on her own, to think through the things she can't deal with anymore or anywhere else. From the top landing, Jules steps gingerly down the hall, from board to remaining withered board. After each step, she pauses to make sure she has firm purchase. The only planks still to be trusted are those centered on the joists. So she waits to confirm the solid feel of a two-by-four beneath, be beneath her sneaker before launching as lightly as she can to the next remaining surface. The master bedroom is still mostly intact, except for its far corner where an ancient maple has grown relentlessly into the house, becoming a part of the building. The wide trunk has pushed through the walls and deep inside the room. Its branches have forced the window frames out of their casings with glacial slowness and strength. When Jules first came here with Carrie, the tree, still outside but with its roots already grinding through the shallow foundation far below, had only nudged its outline against the south wall. A handful of twigs wrapped patiently against the broken glass of the window. Lately in this room, Jules gets the sense that the entire structure has become a treehouse. The thought makes the room and her feel weightless, attached to nothing. Not her life, not the ground. She pictures herself in the branch-wrapped building floating away across fallow fields. Don't laugh, says the house. This will happen to you someday, too. Jules understands what she means. Not me, she says. I want to be cremated. Same thing, says the house. Faster, says Jules. Yes, faster answers the house. 
A pale rectangle in the middle of the floor marks where a rug must have once sprawled beneath the bed. The bed frame, its corroded springs lolling from the slightest movement in the room, has been joisted onto its side has been hoisted onto its side against one wall. Jules asked Carrie to help her do this last fall, so that she would have more room for her project. Jules goes to the closet and slides two fingers through the dark circle where a doorknob would once have been. She tugs deftly. Inside is a whole other time. What is it you're always looking for in those newspapers? asks the house. I thought you knew everything, answers Jules. I know a lot, and I know very little. What is it you're hoping to find in there? A different life? A different you? Maybe, yeah. Another me. Where I'm shilling 1956's latest mink fashions. Or making the perfect roast duck for my husband and our 2.4 white bread children. If you mock them, why do you read so much about them? Mind your own business house. Jules's mom, Jean-Fievre, Jeannie, and her husband, Mike, will be coming home from the airport tonight. It's a six-hour flight from Paris. That, plus customs and the time needed to pick up their bags and then the two-hour drive from the city, means that Mike's brother, Rob, won't get them home until at least eight o'clock. Jules unhooks her pocket watch from the coin pocket on her jeans. She listens to the second-hand tickets way around the top of a minute, then unclicks the silver lid to look inside. The watch was her inheritance from her real father's father. It says it's just past six o'clock. It's been ten days since Jules's mom and Mike left for France. Jeannie's father died of a stroke in his hometown on some southern, in some southern province Jules can't even remember the name of. Jeannie and Mike booked tickets as soon as they got the call. Jules's mom said they had to go because he was her father, no matter how horribly he had treated her, and they had to do what they could for the funeral. Jules assumed right away that they were only going to see what they could get from the will, or what they could snatch from the old man's house before other relatives showed up. They left Rob in charge of the family and sent, of the farm and sent Jules down the road to stay with Carrie and her family. Jules's French grandfather didn't have much money from what Jules had gathered, so she imagines her mom is by now reeling from disappointment that there's no secret stash. Jules can't speak French and only met the old man the one time he came to visit the farm, so she's never had a chance to ask him about his life. Instead, she only has her mother's untrustworthy accounts of stinginess and cruelty. Jules's own father, she recalls, hated the man, although she can't remember why. She can picture her dad once telling someone that his father-in-law was a real bastard. Through the dreamy haze that cloaks all her memories of her father, Jules also thinks she remembers him telling her she should never trust her grandpere if she had the choice. With the bastard's death, though, the last of the men Jules was ever related to is gone. Jules had not considered this before. Had only thought about the old man's death as a thing unto itself. Now that she's in the safety of her house, of her room, she realizes this final death has left her truly alone with her mom in the life her mom had create, has created. Still cradling a stack of stained newspapers in her arms, Jules plunks herself down under the weight of this new thought, settling both herself and the stack onto a carpet of dust and dried leaves. Swallowing a shudder of mournful solitude, she pushes her thoughts towards her papers instead. She starts to lay them out around her in small stacks by month, Today's pile is 1948 to 1950. These ones were not wallpaper, although she does have samples of those in another pile. Today's papers were installation in the attic. 
The first time, two years ago, Mike slipped into her bedroom in the dark while his wife lay asleep in their room down the hall. Jules's mom had passed out after a night partying with her friends. It had been someone's birthday. Jules woke up with Mike's hand covering her mouth, his hot breath on her face. She'll never believe you, he whispered. Only me. Jules knew he was right, and she never told anyone, until Carrie, last night. At first, the rage Jules felt was not directed at Mike, but at herself. How could she never have thought he would do the same to Carrie? Why did she never tell Carrie so at least she could be forewarned? But Carrie hadn't known, couldn't have known. She only knew that Jules no longer wanted to hang out as much, and that she wasn't as much fun anymore when they did get together. During the moonlit conversation in Carrie's room last night, Carrie told Jules she had put the differences in Jules down to high school, to new friends, to diverging interests. And so Carrie, not knowing, got into Mike's car when he offered her a ride the last week of school. Today, Jules's anger is all for Mike. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit just to leave you with a bit of closure. (laughs) Jules retraces her stepping stone route down the hall and back down the stairs. Pausing on the bottom riser, she uncoils the elastic from her ponytail and twines it around her bundle of newspapers. With a solid throw, she tosses the package over the hole in the floor to the safety of the front door. She tugs at the newel post again with both hands to test that it's still solid then swings herself over the dark maw below to the strip of floor remaining in the far edge of the hole on, at the far edge of the hole. She teeters too far forward on her toes and quickly corrects, forcing herself back against the wall to regain her balance. Several somethings scratch and titter below as Jules inches carefully toward the swath of mottled green linoleum by the door. On solid footing again, she opens the hall closet. Inside is the broom, an old towel, a box of Kleenexes, and the ancient glass paraffin lantern. She pulls the lantern from the shelf and swings it back and forth to check that it still has plenty of liquid sloshing around in the chamber. She closes the closet door and picks up her papers. From the threshold, she looks back towards the stove. To her, the white iron hulk, rusted and inaccessible across the hollow floor, has always seemed like the house's heart. Don't say it, says the house, but... It's okay, says the house. We both know that I know. Jules feels a wash of love for the house and for everything it's given her. Go on, it says. Thank you, whispers Jules. She's left it too late into the evening. The bramble-charged lane that skirts the nearest field is difficult to see in the dimming light. She follows the double ruts of the homemade truck lane as they continue into the narrow woods behind. The oaks and maples holding hands together high holding hands high above, are already blocking out the last of the sunset. Twice, Jules nearly falls with the lantern, once going all the way down on one knee. As Jules emerges from the woods, a thin strip of sky still blazes orange above the forest at the end of Mike and Rob's secret field. Jules wades through the tall corn planted by the men to hide their crop. She sets her lamp down on the ground and shimmies the elastic off over the end of her paper bundle. Jules was relieved when Carrie said she didn't want to go to the police either. Neither of them wanted to tell their story to a room full of cops or to a judge who would decide if he felt like believing them. Jules lifts the glass chimney from the top of the lantern, 
then turns the, turns the tiny screws holding the metal cap to the base. The thick, withered cloth of the wick is dry, and she casts it aside among the plants. She dips sheet after sheet of old newspaper into the kerosene, making a row of wetted paper flutes. She carries the first flute far away and lights it with one of Mike's lighters. She holds it to the leaves of one of the marijuana plants, as if it's a candle. But the green leaves only smolder at first. She gathers another cone and lights it, this time laying, in the, laying it in the arms of a nearby cornstalk. She watches the fire bloom almost instantly and races to get more of the flutes. By the time Jules throws the sixth flute, the fire has caught well enough that she can go now. She flings the lantern and the rest of her stack of newspapers further into the field before backing away toward the trail in the woods. She remembers the lighter, pulls it from her pocket, and launches it into the fire, too. She checks her hands and jeans quickly for obvious evidence, although she doubts it'll be the arsonist the police care the most about arresting. If they do bother to investigate, Carrie and her mother will swear Jules has been with them the entire time, like family. Jules watches the spreading blaze for one more moment before she starts to trot, then run toward the lane. She stumbles briefly now and again in the rutted darkness, but stays on her feet the entire way through the trees, then past the open field. The moon and the stars are glowing vibrant above as she gets to the backyard. Jules stops to catch her breath. She can see the tree's branches have already begun to push through the shingles, exposing the first line of rafters to the sky. Jules and the house say nothing to each other before Jules turns and runs the secret path back to Carrie's farm. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks for coming all this way, Anita, and for gracing us with your haunting tales. I can't say that I'm planning to go to Wigam anytime soon, but <laughs> just, there we go. <laughs> I'm really excited to bring this next reader up to the mic. Domenica Martinello. How's my accent? Cool. A poet from Montreal was a finalist for the 2017 Bronwyn Wallace Award for Emerging Writers and the winner of the Carte Blanche Three Max Prize. Currently completing an MFA in poetry at the Venerable Iowa Writers Workshop. Venerable is not in there, I just put it in. Her debut collection, All Day I Dream About Sirens, is forthcoming with Coach House Books in 2019. Please welcome Domenica to the mic. Thank you so much. It's actually always been a, a dream of mine to read alongside three prose writers and a bluegrass band. So <laughs> this is a very exciting time. Yeah. Um, okay, yeah, but really I'm actually super excited to be here. Pivot was actually one of the first reading series I ever attended after moving to, um, to Toronto, which seems like many moons ago now. Um, so this is really great to be here. Um, yeah, so these poems are from... Um, my collection all day dream about sirens i think this first one is kind of um, a nice way maybe to like summarize a bit of what the collection is concerned with um, it's called 13 ways to optimize your underwater brand <coughs> <laughs> mythology is rife with fishy women 
Myrrh for matronly ocean, made for servitude in clamshells. From the brine came a perfectly curvaceous specimen who swam her way through history and splayed herself languorously on the jutting rocks of our hearts. Splicing traits of sea monsters with airtight maidenhood has created mesmerizing staples in questionable storytelling from Ithaca to Denmark. What do the sirens and Ariel have in common? Tits, tunes, and fins. From fish to fearmonger, here are some bewitching examples of how various ages spawn a lolling trollop, animal pastiche, high camp niche, best-selling Barbie, a rainbow scale titillation, underage hair, hair combing with a fork. Here's the aqueous, the spume, acquiescent, dangerous female logo. Okay, and these um, next three poems, kind of uh, Western literature's introduction to the siren uh, was kind of through uh, the Homer's The Odyssey. Um, Parthenope is uh, one of the sirens who encounters Odysseus on his journey, and there are many different kind of reworkings of that story. So these next three kind of are riffing off of some of those. Uh, Parthenope. <coughs> O tactician, what great tact you have, while I unshell my breast and sink, much suffering stomach churned lovesick with avian flues. My wetness quenched Virgil, quelled Vesuvius, tears filled the sea with pearls. Voice bleached the bones my sisters cut their teeth on. Now humiliated cities will be named after me, me who's sick for thighs and seaweed slick for a thick old bone like you, a slit of wind taunting ankles, ankles, ankles. Foreman of men, you've domesticated me, swallow a strand of my long black hair, and we can call it monogamy. Parthenope embodied. Emboldened, my black hair grows back, stranged. Let my razor go dull as sea glass. Stubble scales me, a hot swarm of ants down my belly, my arms and hinges. Wet brine behind my ears, a bone dried out. Hope is a molted thing with feathers and thick viscous tar, a bewitched spring chicken at the farm. What's your one weird trick? I have two or three. Put my body on the block and blow me like a reed. I can live without a head for months, little crumb. Try me. Parthenope and Virgil. Women are cities and cities are humiliating. Tourists haggle the price and somehow still pay double. The city is leaky and smells like fishwives. Locals chide in dialect, tangy as a faux leather belt. Men are angry and angry men turn each other into volcanoes. What is it like to live in the shadow of a volcano? On the cusp of eruption, it's exciting for the tourists. Burning through their cash, it's all you can smell. Volcanoes violate cities to ash and stone. It's a pity. I'd pumice my feet with it all if I could. 
Okay. <clears throat> this one is called um, The Last Surviving Sea Silk Seamstress for uh, or after uh, Chiara Vigo, who is actually a real person. Uh, she's around 60 years old, living in Italy. Um, sea Silk Seamstresses, um, it's a m matrilineal kind of uh, weaving that's been passed down um, by women in Italy for like hundreds of years um and apparently it might come to an end this generation um it's very interesting that uh the title of the poem is actually named after a bbc article if you want to like go actually read about it um the um sea silk is this fiber that grows on these mollusks that are um, going extinct due to pollution um but this poem kind of reimagines uh sea silk as maybe the hair of of sirens um and yeah, one more interesting thing. It's kind of an anti-capitalist um, art form because um, if you're a sea silk seamstress, you're not supposed to sell the uh, weaving. You're supposed to give it away so you don't take payment for it, um, even though it's quite a long and like laborious process. Anyways, um, it's obviously very interesting. Um, the last surviving sea silk seamstress. One, God said, let there be bysis, and outsprouted the first blonde trees of Sorrento. We sun our hair like, uh, with lemon juice like bewitched algae on the rocks, a golden embroidery on the sea's harried lip. Attached to Virgil's olive branch was a meaty clump of seaweed, the same swollen hue as our nipples dripping oil, a time before currency. The line between sea and seamstress is three times finer than human hair. We called each one seamistress. Pearls of saliva on a thread, 1,000 years long, and soon an empty loom spun out. Two, God said, let there be math, and we soused King Solomon clean of his robes. He was wicked at the breaststroke. Each boat a little blot of treachery, so willing to singe the sea with bleach. Whenever we need a bone to pick our teeth, we sing our throats into a moneyed tinkle and a toothpick comes rowing. Heads as hard as coins, licked green with salt and moldering. Our hair a darkening oil slick, fungal seafloor smoldering. Have you ever tried to profit from the tides? It's now almost impossible to coax myths from the blue, patterned fabric of the world. It's luster clogged with plastic, backlit, already dim human eyes weakening like a filament disappearing into a silk seam. Three, God said, thoughts and prayers for this awful tragedy. Everything's quick and bald in the 21st century. The sun hangs in the sky like a logo, and we lose our honeyed fleece, black and falling out in fistfuls. Forehead bowed at the precipice, the fingers of the last sea mistress slowly succumb to chalkstone, barren. The rocks grow dark and slick at the thought, there's no one left for her to swear in, no kin or skine or women to weave after her daughter's refusal of the thread between her teeth oaths and patience and a tolerance for mystery, the ocean's true productivity turns skulls to coral reef. Every man adores a casket if it's lush and lined, dyed seaweed green, the cost of every shipwreck rubbing up against our spleen. For God said, I am dead. The museums and gout killed me. 
The last surviving sea silk seamstress opens her door for free. Now, as some of you may know, I am a proponent of reading widely, but I also feel like <laughs> I bring a certain devotion and dedication to certain texts I love, and um, the Odyssey is one of them, and these poems have a lot to do with with Homer and the Odyssey, and uh, I always try to move away uh, sometimes from that, and then I get sucked back in. Sucked back in, and Emily Wilson's come out with a really wonderful new translation of the Odyssey, and this is a poem that has sprung from revisiting that. Um, <clears throat> it's called Cattle of the Sun after a, a book in the Odyssey. Cattle of the Sun. <clears throat> My ex once lived in a house later dubbed the Chattel Ranch. It wasn't a ranch when he lived there, though. His six starving roommates padlocked their rooms, and the one female roommate padded around, marking their doors in black trickster ink, drew dicks and other epithets to humiliate them. Each time she got drunk, she cocked her sharpie to stave off the already gathering smell of hay. Each room, a padlocked stanza, the word Blue hasn't been invented yet. Ulysses made our bed, bought the frame for cheap. It seemed important to have someone to take the long journey to Ikea with. Existing out of time, eyes, an indescribable yes of light, no language or warning for it. Back at the ranch, the Furies provoke slaughter on the suitors, sliding down the halls, barding post-monogamous joie de vivre. Epic stores of beer, like swine, won't mix wine with water or wait for a yes. Yes hasn't been invented yet. Hello, my name is hard to translate. My dog-like face hounds men to make collect calls home to their moms. Boys will be boys at the ranch and launch a thousand ships on your face. Damn, that's one busy refrain. One version goes, you're safe. One version goes, you're safe if you sleep in an ink-marked ink doorway smudged with girlish smoke. You can smell her hot breath raging like cattle, they say. The bed frames in all the movies sleep and dream a quiet art department's budget. Be recognized forever in cheap plainness or die a bitch's death in complex glory on the floor. Each stanza has an olive tree growing through it, not immovable, no, but laborious then to extrapolate. Um, okay, this one's gonna be my last one. Um, I know that uh, Pivot still has that trigger warning thing in effect, which is really great. So trigger warning, um, sexual assault. This is a, a longer piece and kind of an angry piece and probably won't exist in print, at least not for a while. So it might just exist in performance, which is kind of cool. Um, I don't really know what else to say to introduce this one. Does anyone know what the ideation project is? It's Gomeshi's comeback project. 
Ring of, okay. I'll say no more. This obviously maybe through a specific lens, but I think it, I hope it stands as a, a counter verdict against anyone who hurts us in the community. The ideation project. Exile is a most superb suburb for those who hurt us to disappear into. Bushes kept so high and trim, there'll be rose bushes soon. Perhaps there's traffic on the way back with a bit of honking and all that, but obviously it's not that far a trip because here we are smelling the air. Mmm, all cleared. March 24th, 2016, here to refer to as that day was all corners. And today, the verdict passed, what, seven seasons ago now? Screaming match of spring, summer, fall, summer, spring, summer, fall. I remember it. I did my taxes that day. 100 plus bucks to praise the ledger of the accounting software drop-down list. Fidgeting in the boxy beige office, a pile of coats in one corner. Embracing impermanence is our solemn duty as women, along with coming clean about our emails, always our emails, <laughs> and our emailed bikini pics. Every woman was braless under her coat that day, and all of the schools were closed. Heard a man joke on the phone, Toronto falls apart under a bit of ice. I stifled a shiver, bit my own icy thigh. I don't exist properly under the big red clit of the Canada Revenue Agency in offices or courtrooms. My femininity is so much bigger and better and more pleasurable than yours. I've been, trailed to I've been trained to wield it like the big magnificent cock that it is. I spread myself out in public. I take my comfort like the boys. Stick my fingers into any icebox I want. And let the record show the type of heels worn in court by the lawyer the audience is invited to wonder. Would she have secretly liked being choked too? Fear is infectious as strep throat. Develop a parasocial relationship to hair pulling, to keeping handwritten notes, to Lady Justice herself, who ironically never gets choked up on the topic of what she may or may not have seen. That day, I watched the coats in the corner multiply, pile, 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 as if disappearing a body, feeling cornered. Each time the accountant exits the room to consult her supervisor, and I barely made any money this year again, who in this narrative is yearning for predictability? The coats, a soft dismissive surveillance. No, ma'am, I did not keep the past three years of tax returns. Frankly, I'm humiliated by all the lengthy decisions of our most esteemed elders. Some thrive on archives, others on paper trails or the rickety railroad of rumor. Some fondle the sweet, frigid plums. We all know that one guy. 
Everyone has a story or heard one. Some got tied to the tracks anyway. Some of us finger our files on the reg. The double metonymy of pen and sword, of holding court for fear of missing out. No one knows and everyone does. Where were you the first time you had mud flung in your face and pretended to like it? Where were you the second time? How bruised were you that day when you fell hard on the ice and bounced right back up so fast for fear of being seen? How long after you walked away did the shock wear off and it actually started to hurt? When did you first feel the pain? And if the pain is delayed long enough, was it ever really there in the first place or is it still there, a sickly blotch embodied? Is the pain blameless? Less, less, less. There's no pressing pause on that day. The air was so bitter and so cold. I went and got myself in order. I went and got myself on paper. This is just to say I ran from my attention span. That day began to gestate. It gestated all corners to write myself out of. Nuance was not a casualty of my gesticulating ideation. Politics to philosophy to pop culture's subhuman condition of repetition. Command A, quit all. Command A, quit all. Command A, quit all. Eighth season, winter, bushes bare, ice on all the roads back here. Thank you. Thank you, Domenica. That was a very widely read. <laughs> Kevin Hardcastle is a fiction writer from Simcoe County, Ontario. He was a finalist for the 2012 Journey Prize, and his stories have been published widely. Hardcastle's debut short story collection, Debris, won the Trillium Book Award and the Relit Award for short fiction. His novel, In the Cage, uh, has recently been published by Biblioasis. Let's bring up Kevin. Hello. Um, thanks for coming out. Uh, it's, it's cold. Yeah, I'm just going to read a bit of my book. It's about MMA and hillbillies and all kinds of other stuff. There's a couple feelings. Um, <laughs> they're secret. But, uh, and then I did a trigger warning last time I read here. So for trigger warning, I would say violence, poverty, drinking, MMA, and hillbillies. Because that's, that's the biggest, biggest problem we've got. Okay, let's do this. He could see her silhouette flickering in the candlelit kitchen window. If she had heard the truck pull in, she didn't show it. She raised her hand to her mouth, a smoke there. She inhaled deep and let out. Her head bowed some. Daniel went quick up the front steps. The front door was open, and when he tried the screen door, it was unlocked. He walked in and let his bag down to the entryway carpet and went through to the kitchen with his shoes on. Sarah didn't turn when he came into the room. She didn't quit smoking either. Daniel moved opposite her at the table and sat. Her eyes were red. She had tear tracks long dried on her lovely cheeks and they showed faint. What happened, he said. 
She didn't answer, just stared at him across the table. She seemed to be inventorying the new damage on his face, scrapes and swelling around his eyes and chin. There was an open bottle of red wine on the, on the table with maybe a flute worth left in the thick glass bottom. Daniel reached over for her half-full glass and took a swig. Taste of her lip gloss, the caustic taste of weed smoke in the claret. He slid the glass back over to her and she looked at it, stared at him tired. Daniel leaned back in the chair to where he almost toppled and got hold of the fridge door and pulled it open. He reached in and came back knuckling three beers. He shut the door and leaned forward to clatter the chair legs down again. How much of that shit have you had? He said. She smiled for maybe a half second, passed him the joint. He took a haul and handed it back, coughed hard into the crook of his elbow. They sat there in silence. They drank. She smoked for a time and then got back up and put it out in the sink and came back. She brought her hair back with both hands and tied it there. Then she bent down and fished through her purse on the floor. When she sat up again, she had a torn open envelope in her hand. She wiped her eyes and slid the letter across the table to Daniel, and then she looked up at the ceiling. He set his beer down and took up the envelope. He pulled the letter and unfolded it carefully as he could. He read. When he was done, he put the pages back in the envelope and held it in his hand for a while. Finally, he slid, back, he slid it back over to Sarah. She just let it lie on the tabletop in front of her. You are going to go to that school, Sarah, he said. She shook her head and ran a knuckle under her eye again. Did you see what it costs? There's government loans they give for that. I can't be off work that long. If something goes wrong, we are done for. Daniel got up with his chair in hand and set it down beside her. He sat and put an arm around her. She was rigid, but he kept on. Is that what you want to do or isn't it? I wanted other things I didn't get. It won't be the last one. Daniel cupped his chin in the valley, cupped her chin in the valley between his thumb and forefinger. Trust me when I tell you that eventually you can come to a last one. You can come to it all of a sudden. Sarah took his hand in hers and put it to her cheek. She let go and sat up straight and poured more wine, took a swig from the glass. I'll get work, he said. It doesn't matter what it is. She leveled her eyes on him. Yes, she said, it does. He tried to smile for her. She drank again, took a few breaths and emptied the glass. Then she pulled his arm up by the wrist, wrapped it around her. They watched the candles melt down and spill, their like in the black window glass behind. You're going to that school. Her head nodded slight at his shoulder joint. I'll find a way to get you there. Okay, she said. He had his hands taped in the dressing room for visiting singers and visiting comedians. Mirrors ringed in light bulbs and signed pictures of celebrities put out to pasture on the casino circuit. There were some 800 people in folding chairs in the banquet room where they staged the fights. Daniel could hear the chatter of them through the open door. He had Jasper and Jungwoo there, and they both wore shorts, shirts with Jasper's gym insignia on the back, face of a tither wreathed in the woven rope of the Mong Khan, tie script above, Daniel wore nothing but his shorts and his shoes and the silver cross that stuck to his neck by the sweat from his warm-up. A few officials from the band that ran the casino were in the room to supervise. They weighed him up all the while. Daniel made his walk and partway he thought about turning back around. He was glad for the nerves. If he didn't have them, he'd have known that he was doomed. 
There was no cage built for the fight, just a standard boxing ring with ropes and four corner posts. Mixed martial arts and Muay Thai fights were made legal in the province the year before and had been fought sparely on reserve land until then, in the states or out of province. The officials and his corner man took Daniel to the staging area at the edge of the ring, and the cut man assigned to him daubed Vaseline on his nose and eyebrows and rubbed it even through his cheeks. Another official checked his cup and the fingerless four-ounce gloves and the signature on the tape around them. They had him show his mouth guard and they waved him up the steps. He put his arms around Jasper and Jingwu, and the Korean told him to kill. It was a heavyweight fight and the other man stood six foot three and weighed just shy of 240 pounds. Daniel weighed just shy of 220 and he gave up an inch or two in height. The other man had death's head tattoos on his arms and a grenade inked on the back of his right hand. Scars about his mouth and eyes, not a shred of fat on him. They did not touch gloves and the other fighter belted himself about the cheeks and showed his black mouth guard. Minutes in and the man had Daniel bull rushed to the ring post, tried to can opener him by pushing Daniel's head back, his massive forearm and one hand jammed under Daniel's chin. Daniel fought the hands and shucked his head loose and kneed up to the man's guts. The man took them well and through knees of his own to Daniel's sides and quads, one that caught the cup and could be heard playing but the ref didn't see. Daniel fought for position and got an underhook on the man's one arm and drove his hand under his opponent's chin. He stepped quick and turned the man. There he could tell the other fighter lacked in his footwork and his rudiments. The man clawed at him and threw uppercuts up the middle, one that numbed Daniel's upper teeth and set his ear ringing. Daniel kept at the knees. One of them made the man put a hand down, and Daniel worked both, both hands behind the man's head and put one over the other in a tie plumb, pinched his elbows together, and pulled down. The man couldn't defend quick enough, and Daniel ragdolled him against the ropes, and they bowed under the weight and made it harder for the bigger man to get his footing. Daniel threw brutal knees to the body from range, stutter stepping to the mat and driving full with his ass and hips. The crowd groaned whole at the sound. Daniel blasted him again and when the other fighter's hands dropped to defend his body, Daniel elevated and ripped a knee flush to the man's forehead and the man crumpled and nearly went out through the ropes. Somehow he got back up on unsteady legs and swung hooks that whiffed as Daniel slipped and waited to time his attack. The big man's right eye was shut and his forehead above had already begun swelling monstrous. Daniel lit him up on the ropes, long punches to the bad eye and the contusion. He fainted and bombed power shots off time. When the man next shelled up, Daniel stepped wide on his right foot and turned on that toe and whipped a hard left round kick to that other fighter's liver side. Impact like he took a baseball bat to the man. The man's body seized and quit, and he dumped to the canvas. Daniel started to back off and raise his arms, but the ref just looked at him, so Daniel loped in and hammered the man upside the ear with another right hand. He sat by the slots with two beers on the counter and his right hand in the ice bucket. Daniel still wore his fight shorts with their blood stains, hoodie that he'd already sweat damp. He played quarter bets and pulled the lever. Jung Woo and Jasper were near the box office talking at the events manager and some of the pit bosses who'd seen the fight and were mimicking the clinch and the knees. The manager paid them out and shook hands with both men. He waved over to Daniel where he sat. Daniel raised a hand back. He put the last quarters in the machine and flushed them. You ready, champ? Jasper said. Sure, Daniel said. He downed his first beer, took the other up as he stood and pulled on it as he left out the casino left out across the casino floor with his trainers. Thank you. Thanks for coming up. Thanks, Pivot.
Thank you, Kevin Hardcase, Hardcastle. <laughs> it was awesome. Now we welcome Nevin Ruthnum, who won the Journey Prize for his short fiction. Anti Heckle uh, has been a National Post books columnist and has written books and cultural criticism for the Globe and Mail, Hazlitt, and the Walrus. His crime fiction has appeared in Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine and Joyland. And his pseudonym, Nathan Ripley's first novel, will appear in 2018. Ruthum lives in Toronto. Please welcome Nibin Ruthum as he will read from Curry. Hey, uh, yeah, thanks to all the other readers. It's really great. As South Asian literature, a term just as nonspecific but functionally useful as Indian food, grew throughout the 70s and 80s to become an increasingly mainstream cultural force in the West, a generic calcification began to appear around certain elements. This thread of diasporic literature became a subgenre onto itself, and it's now a sure thing that you'll find a disconnected family roots rediscovery page-turner with exotic red silks, black braided hair, and perhaps a mango on the cover among the stacked books at Costco, or on a chain bookstore table under an Eastern Journeys placard. I, I should have written Indigo chapters there, but I thought it might hurt my sales. Would have made no difference at all. I'll always, always go for it. These books bear titles like The Golden Sun by Shilpi Samayagata, The Orphan Keeper by Cameron White, who is white, but the book is based on a true story of kidnapping an orphan selling in India and therefore fits comfortably into this authenticity-rich subgenre. The Hindi Bindi Club, Monica Badan, and The Mistress of Spices, Chitra Banerjee Divarkuni. There is strong, sincere prose in many of these books, and others are solid entertainments. Regardless of literary quality, they typically hit enough nostalgia, authenticity, and exoticism points to score decently on Goodreads. When these books are really bad, nuance is out the door, as mothers and fathers screech rules and edgy white girlfriends and boyfriends offer drugs. <laughs> Some of this reflects the lived experience of many South Asians, of course, but the poles of the pure if backward East in opposition to the corrupt but free West in these stories is drawn so strictly that the books become fairy tales by default. Books that escape the codifications of the genre often interrogate it. Hanif Qureshi's The Buddha of Suburbia, later made into a television show scored by David Bowie starring a pre-lost Naveen Andrews, called bullshit on East and West equally. The protagonist is a 60s hippie teen whose father sets himself up as a junior Maharishi in London's suburbs with unholy goals of sexual and financial enrichment. It's possible for vendors of South Asian spiritual groundedness to make the move west, whether by plane ticket or by book, and it's also possible for South Asian emigrants to the west and for their children to long for the truths of the past in a pure homeland. White writers have certainly pursued the authenticity of the imagined ancestral past that is the birthright of every second or third generation of the member of the South Asian diaspora. Getting back to the real right thing is, after all, a key part of Elizabeth Gilbert's overwhelmingly successful spiritual self-help travel memoir, 2006's Eat, Pray, Love, a cousin to a certain subgenre of books in the widening field of South Asian literature. Gilbert's travel experience in the book reflects a particularly modern privilege, allocating circumscribed experiences to particular cultures and geographies, designating each place with a desire or goal. In Gilbert's predetermination of how her year of self-discovery was going to unfold, India was the prey place after her feasting in Italy. The pound she gained in experience of gelato, cheese, pasta, and bread, what was that? 
Everything's ruined. Gelato, cheese, pasta, and bread on what her friend Susan calls the no-carb left-behind tour are to be abandoned, along with the spiritual clutter of her past in her guru's ashram. One of her ashram pals, Richard from Texas, describes a place where Gilbert starts her Indian sojourn as a beautiful place of worship, surrounded by grace. Take this time, every minute of it. Let things work themselves out here in India. At that line, the quietude of Gilbert's time in India and its consequent artificiality becomes striking. In exposing herself to spiritual truth, the overmastering fact of India's population, its crammed density, the crowd, as Salman Rushdie put it in a 1987 essay, The Riddle of Midnight, by the way, somebody's giving away midnight children, Midnight's children back there, which is actually a racist thing to do, just saying, <laughs> on the separation of India and Pakistan, is nowhere to be seen. That's a joke, it's not racist. She's in perpetual peace with other seekers. From most accounts of red, extending from the Raj to the present day, peace and quiet in India is an expensive commodity. In the country that Gilbert has allocated the role of finding her inner truth, she's strictly averse to any outer experience. Her resistance to getting out of her Indo-spiritual mode by engaging with the country emerges as a reluctance to taste it. Here's a quote. A few times a week, Richard and I wander into town and share one small bottle of thumbs up, a radical experience after the purity of vegetarian ashram food. <laughs> Always being careful not to actually touch the bottle with our lips. Richard's rule about traveling in India is a sound one. Don't touch in anything but yourself. <laughs> this may not be explicitly racist, but it is hilariously cautious. A hundred pages ago, Gilbert was dining on the intestines of a newborn lamb, but in India, she'll decide that her needs are best served by staying in the ashram for the full term of her spiritual education. Gilbert has a clear idea of what she's there for. She didn't come to India to eat. Where Italy was a place for gustatory hedonism, India is a place of spiritual honesty and reconstruction, and damned if she's going to allow it to be anything else. Her time in the country after her days of self-confrontation and looking for the yogic god in herself ends with a flight out of India at four in the morning, which is typical of how India works. Maybe it is typical. I haven't been myself. And it's likely that Gilbert has been back and experienced a fuller version of the country since. But can she make the call of what's typical of the country or not after having spent a few weeks meditating in a series of quiet rooms? Jhumpa Lahiri's experience of Italy, a country she moved to in order to deepen a long-standing relationship with its language, speaks to another aspect of the inescapable realities of travel. In other words, Lahiri's written in Italian account of a mature writer coming to grips with a, with a different language can't help but become a travelogue, as her Italian can only make the final leap toward fluency by her moving from America to Rome, a trip back to someone else's old country, in pursuit of a language she wants to make her own. Despite her advanced level of proficiency in the language, Lahiri's white husband is constantly taken by Italians to be the real native speaker in the family. Quote, but your husband must be Italian. He speaks perfectly without any accent, end quote, a saleswoman tells Lahiri, ignoring her husband's clearly Spanish accent and Lahiri's <laughs> higher level of fluency. The saleswoman can't hear Lahiri's better grasp of the language simply because she doesn't look like her Italian should be better than her white husband's. While Elizabeth Gilbert's Americanness is often called to her attention in Italy in relation to her body, her manner, and her clunky use of the language, the sense of rejection is never as profound as the one Lahiri takes from her experience of her language being deemed inferior to her husband's. Gilbert wanted to visit Italy to eat, to nourish herself in this place that was away from her. Lahiri wants to absorb the country, to inhabit its language and ultimately the place itself. 
She's, con she's confronted with the fact that racism prevents this from occurring once she leaves the domain of pure language and enters the life of the country. On the Italian pages she writes and reads, she can belong. She can have an authentic experience and be accepted by the language as her mastery of it increases. But in the streets, she's still a brown woman among white Italians. Gilbert's whiteness allows her to shape Italy to f fit the preconceived experience she needs to extract. Lahiri can. To get the experience, the Indian experience she needs, Gilbert also has to shut out the country outside and stay in her ashram the whole time. Even privilege and whiteness aren't, aren't enough to corral the actual life of India on the other side of the meditation gates. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Namaz. You keep it going. Thank you for coming out. Thank you to Anita Dolman. Thank you to Domenica Martinello. Kevin Hardcastle. <laughs> and Nabin Ripton. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you guys for coming out. To find out more about the Pivot Readings, go to pivotreadings.ca.